Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. I'm John Porch, the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I hope you are all safe and healthy wherever you happen to be listening to this. Today's guest is Jess Thirlby, the head coach of the England Netball Roses. Jess succeeded Tracy Neville shortly after the Roses finished third at the Netball World Cup in Liverpool last summer. She has some big shoes to fill, given that Neville led England to Commonwealth gold in 2018. But the next 50-odd minutes of what is a wide-ranging chat about English netball and the discipline of coaching showcase Jess as a deep thinker on coaching and performance in general and go some way to showing that the Roses are in good hands. Indeed, as England netball's chief executive Joanna Adams said at the time, Jess is the perfect fit because of her thorough understanding of elite netball. That sounds like pretty good news for England fans ahead of the 2022 Commonwealth Games, which sees the Roses defend their gold medal on home soil in Birmingham. I'm going to let Jess properly introduce herself during the first part of our conversation here, because her coaching pathway, which has taken her across the globe, encompasses many of the coach education and development experiences that teams are increasingly trying to provide for their coaches. Yet there she was, even while still playing in her mid-twenties, seeking coach development experiences in a manner that was perhaps a decade or two ahead of her time. Moreover, they were experiences she often sought for herself, and it's a proactive attitude she still encourages in her players today. It probably goes without saying that she seems born to coaching, and we delved into the necessary skill sets, the processes that led to her taking the Rose's reins, and how to build optimal performance environments. Now, before we get into the chat, I wanted to thank all of you who attended our virtual Leaders Meet Coach Development event last month. After the coronavirus pandemic saw the physical event at St. George's Park cancelled, our team here at Leaders rallied to bring the event online. For those of you who weren't there, we heard speakers from the Football Association, Google, England Rugby and Eton College talk about themes relating to coaching and development. Videos from the day and all the key takeaways are available at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance for all members of the Leaders Performance Institute. You'll also find a wealth of insight around leadership and culture, other content regarding coaching and development, human performance, as well as data and innovation. So head over there after listening to this. Oh, and one more element of housekeeping. This conversation with Jess took place before the coronavirus brought UK sport and indeed world sport to a halt. So there's no reference to the pandemic or its impact on the sport. Perhaps this does us no harm to focus elsewhere for a little while at least, and there are plenty of nuggets to take away from what is essentially a coaching masterclass. So, without any further ado, here is Jess Thelby. Jess, welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. Thank you very much. I wanted to begin by asking you to outline your coaching journey so far. Take us from your playing days through to the present day with the England Roses. Yeah, I mean, I get asked that so so many times. It's difficult, if I'm honest, to kind of say where it started because I think on reflection, um, I I was most probably that really annoying athlete that always asked why to every coach that ever coached me. So I wonder whether or not my coaching journey really did start a lot earlier than than getting a specific title or job role, um, I guess, in essence, is what I'm trying to say. So um, I've always been a very curious um, athlete. Uh, I journeyed through the sport first and foremost as a performer um, representing England from under 16. So I guess between the age of 14 and and 24, predominantly representing England at every level, culminating 
in most probably my bigger achievement was being part of the squad that went to the Manchester 2002 Commonwealth Games. Um, but even before kind of my playing career, I guess, concluded, I'd already started my coaching journey and showed a real interest in, in what, A, wanting to share my knowledge, um, B, really wanting to explore the game. I was fascinated with how many different ways could you go about playing the game? How do you go about coaching that and imparting that knowledge with others and and really helping other people to reach their potential? So even as quite a young athlete, I would say around kind of 18, 19, I started to take, you know, very short lived, um, you know, club teams or university teams. Um, and I led on on a couple of the England age group camps um, and took some some age group teams to their Netball Europe competitions where the home nations compete against one another. And I guess really started my journey around that time. Um, and whilst, you know, very much looking back, that was very sessional. Uh, I think it was a really important transition into exploring that space as a coach um, and most probably had a, a really positive impact on me as a performer at the time. Um, so, yeah, it was around that age. I, I remember taking a national clubs under 19 side up to Manchester. It had the likes of Jeeva Mentor in it, Pamela Cookie, um, really enjoying kind of working in that space side by side with them and um, Netball Europe teams. You know, I took an under 17 team that had the likes of Serena Guthrie in it and Joe Harton. So it kind of tracks back quite scarily quite a long time ago now. Um, and very, very proud to kind of uh, have had those opportunities, but also seek them out. Um, I was always one for kind of sticking my hand up. I never felt ready. Uh, and I think that's most probably one of my key take home points on my coaching journey is, you know, you, you're you sometimes have to go down that formal route of putting your hand up and applying for certain roles and um, competing against others to get it. And I think it was it, it was a space where for a long time it was like, am I really ready? And uh, I was quite young, I think, on the transition into coaching. Um, and I guess a really significant point for me was um, I was coaching the England under 21s um, towards a World Youth Cup in the Cook Islands in 2009. Uh, and through England Netball, they could nominate um, coaches, high performing coaches um, to go forward for the UK Sport Elite Coach Programme. Um, and I was really fortunate that the performance director at the time felt that I was well placed to do that. Still very young in my coaching and still actually playing at a relatively high level within Super League and on the fringes of the England senior setup. Uh, and it was a very rigorous process. It's pretty scary, actually, as a kind of 24, 25 year old in the room with, you know, the likes of Tony Minicello, uh, Danny Kerry, all kind of, you know, have gone on to achieve even more. But at the time, we're, we're in a very different place in their coaching journey to me. So um, I think that the biggest thing that enabled me to do was really commit full time to coaching. Uh, I'd been a radiographer. So whilst I was playing, my actual degree was in radiography. So my, my job, my day job was radiography um, whilst trying to continue to play at the highest level. And I think what that UK sport programme offered really was to, to make a full transition into coaching. And I worked with a, a group of mentors, Lynn Gunson, Dennis Edwards, that they're all kind of key people that mapped out with me. OK, if we're going to take this seriously and I'm going to throw everything at it, what type of coaching roles and environments do I need to embed myself in to, to accelerate my development alongside what UK Sport were providing? So um, and, and I guess at the time, you know, the only other full time coaching position, paid coaching position was the England coach role. Um, <laughs> So it was a real privilege for me to kind of 
make that transition very much um, in the space within the team bath environment for which I'd grown up in as a performer, um, but also seek out varying opportunities. I completed my level three, so more formalized qualification and uh, it's pretty labor intensive, I think, as is any formal qualification and um, most probably quite uncomfortable um, having to do it in a particular way and style. But I would say all of these kind of experiences together, I think of what have played the biggest part in the coach that I am today. I don't think there's any one that I look at and say, oh, that was the thing that made me a better coach. I, I definitely my advice is to any coaches to seek out and explore really different environments, challenging environments, find people that are different to you um, and be OK with that, because I think that's the richness in my learning certainly come through that. And it's something I continue to do now. Um, so, yeah, you know, that my, my coaching journey has been interesting. I I had to make a, a, a quick transition from a performer to a coach and not so much just for me, but also for those around me. Um, as I say, I'd been in the team bath full time environment for a long time as a performer and those people were my friends. And I, I had to quickly change or evolve that identity into a coach and begin to gain the credibility that's needed in that space for, for people to really want to engage with me. So I, I moved over to um, a Super League team, Celtic Dragons, that are based in Wales for my first year of full time coaching. Um, they were bottom of the table. So it was a, a really great space to kind of enter and measure what impact I could have in a short space of time before then returning back into um, the high performance space at Team Bath and leading a team that had already experienced a lot of success, which is a different pressure in itself. Um, and really enjoyed that journey, um, which obviously I, I only left very recently last year. Um, and and yeah, and from there on in, you know, I've coached England teams, England A teams. Um, I've led, I've assisted, I've co-coached in that in that arena. Um, I've been involved with England senior teams as a technical coach, a positional specific coach, and all at the same time is actually, you know, the, the Super League space as well. So it's pretty well rounded. Um, I've, I've been in multiple places around the world. I've I've sought out experience where I've been embedded in um, environments over in Australia and New Zealand um, and, and really got a sense for what that feels like as well and, and gauge some learning from there. So, yeah, a, a, a very well-rounded journey. Started my master's in coaching science and I'm yet to fully complete it, um, only due to the fact that I started my family during um, studying for that. So, I've definitely, with the help of many people, I've tried to kind of go into spaces where I know it's going to play an important part to my coaching um, journey and also where I'm not very comfortable and, and be OK with that. So it's a long answer to your question, but um, <laughs> that's me, I think, in a quick summary. No, thank you for being so comprehensive and bringing us all up to date. Now, we'll often hear coaches say that qualifications alone do not prepare them for the world of coaching. But it sounds as if from the off, you were always looking to supplement your learning by traveling the world and throwing yourself into coaching wherever possible and in whatever capacity. Absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's the fact that in combination, everything was kind of being ticked off um, for me. I think the UK sport program, what that allowed me to do was um, I could be talking with working alongside other coaches from different sports who were in some cases right at the top of their game in other cases very new to the coaching environment as I was um, and it created a community for me outside of my own sport um, and 
And I guess more so for me at a really critical time as well. So I really appreciated that. And what UK sport wrapped around us was exposure to anything other than our actual um, sport, if I'm honest. Um, so bringing experts in from the world of business, from the arts, um, it wasn't just about the sport itself. Um, it was very much an investment in us as people and leaders. Um, and then at the same time, um, uh, I was out in the field doing multiple coaching positions at varying levels, working with young athletes, developing athletes, elite performers. And I was getting that every week as well on a daily basis in what was at the time the only full time environment to do that in Team Bath. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think it was they complemented one another um, as opposed to one of them being the main the main driving or influencer on my coaching ability. So, yeah, I think just a, a perfect fusion for me around the experiences that I was exposed to at that critical time in my journey. What about that transition you made from playing to coaching from a personal perspective? That transition from thinking almost selfishly about your game to considering a whole team. Was that difficult? Yeah, it's, I, th I think it was difficult initially purely based on the fact that at, at the time when I was making that transition, the generation of coaches that were kind of leading in our sporting environment were definitely older as a as a just a general statement around the profile of coaches at the time. So there was quite a gap, I think, um, both in terms of age and stage between the coaches that I'd been led by and then myself, who maybe was one of the first of my generation to really be taking coaching more seriously. Um, so there was no, I guess there was no one for me to really identify with in that space. I, I guess I was the first one. And, and I think for a couple of people, I remember a number of conversations where people were like, wow, you're, you're actually going to stop playing to coach already. Um, and I think that kind of mid-20s space is normally when you talk about performers peaking. And uh, it was a real, there was a tension for me because I'd naively thought that I would be able to continue to play at a really good level. So Super League and, and kind of around that time, I was starting to kind of be on the fringes of an England environment, but they, maybe not first choice at all by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I guess I arrived firstly with deciding that I've most probably reached my peak um, as a performer. I could continue, um, but without knowing if I'm really going to go any further, I was very fortunate to represent my country and go to major Commonwealth Games um, and I was really intrigued by the coaching space. And I thought if my nature anyway is if I do anything, I really want to fully commit to it. So I got over that, which was the initial decision and thought, no. And, and as soon as I made that decision, I just got completely um, taken along with the, with the coaching, really. And I guess it's um, it's absolutely harder than being a performer, which I'm bound to say now I'm sat on this side of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I think mainly for the reasons that you say, like I'm a very reflective person. Um, I can analyze to the nth degree. Uh, I very much look inward. So I, I think firstly and look in the mirror around what I'm doing, what's my practice, what, in, what impact is that having um, first and foremost. So the, the coaching space, as you say, to be responsible for the development of others. Um, and, you know, these guys have got dreams and aspirations and you're one part of that process to try and help them to realize it. And so there's a big accountability there. Um, and so for me, you never stop doing the job that, I mean, that's obvious. I'm sure every coach feels the same. So it takes a real discipline, I think, as to how to manage yourself in that environment and that headspace. Um, but I really enjoy it. As I say, I'm a very curious and pretty disruptive in my coaching practice. 
Um, I love engaging with others. I'm a real collaborator. I, I really um, bounce off other people and, and the player group and the, and the colleagues that I work with. Um, so I think the transition was tough, most probably from, a, I guess, a social point of view. Like, where do I identify myself with now in that area that, you know, no longer can you kind of just go out and be that in that social network as a player any longer. You know, you have to make some quite deliberate changes um, in order to be taken seriously and seen in a different role. And that really only lasts for in, in principle, really, it's quite a short term thing, but it was quite significant for me because the thing I loved most about being a player was the camaraderie with the people that I played with who were brilliant and elite in their own right. And I got a lot out of that connection with the team. And so I think in the journey to coach, it it can, it can and most probably should be a little bit more um, solitary and it's quite isolating to begin with. Um, and I maybe, you know, I didn't help myself. I took on quite hefty and weighty challenges as a coach, taking on, you know, the team bath environment who had had multiple successes under a predecessor in my former coach, who's a world-class coach and former Kiwi um, player herself. I, I didn't take on easy tasks. Um, so may, maybe that's a, a good and a bad thing. Um, but, you know, I was very comfortable with that. But yeah, for, for a while, I would say most probably that was the harder bit, just kind of working out what what's OK to do and what isn't from here on in. Um, but yeah, you know, I very much have taken myself and what I enjoyed as a performer into my coaching and and hope that I really bring energy to to players and staff alike in terms of my I'm I'm super passionate, as most of us are. I'm really reflective. I'm not happy standing still. I like to develop autonomy and independent thinking with those around me. I welcome, in fact, invite people to kind of be disruptive with me and and think beyond where we've been before. And that's always kind of my mantra, really. And as much as I know it sounds quite cliched, I, I'm a big believer in opening up the aperture first and then let's let's throw about some of these ideas before we kind of rule them out. And I think in sport and in particular in ours, you're always very much led by some, you've got some constraints that you've got to work within. Um, but I don't think that should ever inhibit thinking outside the box to achieve something that we've never done before. And I can honestly say in this role now, what an absolute privilege to to take on a, a, a netball, an England Netball Roses team who have achieved so much in the last few years, which if I'm honest, is the culmination of most probably the last 15. Um, I know the public maybe don't understand or appreciate that, but you've got a player group, um, a core to the player group that arrived in Liverpool that have been playing together for way more than a decade. Um, and we're yet to get into that World Cup final. And we have the absolute honour to defend a, a Commonwealth Games gold in a home um, competition in Birmingham in 2022. So, it, it, I've got clear drivers um, and I feel like the player group and the environment I'm working in are, are ready for that. And they're not happy to sit still on, on the recent successes. If anything, it's kind of catapulted us and motivated us for more. Um, and we know that's a hefty challenge, but I think, you know, I'm absolutely embracing that. There's certainly a lot of excitement around the Roses at present. And I want to return to the team later. But first, I want to talk about the coaching pyramid. You've spoken about being a skills coach a technical assistant, right through to being a head coach. Could you perhaps talk about the different skill sets that each role entails? A lot of people kind of refer to me as a technical coach, and I'm still a bit uncertain as to what they really mean by that. Um, I, I kind of feel like coaching is, well, in my view, it has to be pretty holistic. Like, a, first and foremost, knowledge and understanding um, 
and current knowledge of the modern game and also anticipating what that might look like in the future is absolutely critical. Um, I encourage those that work with me, um, not just performers, but everybody and myself and, and hope I demonstrate that every day to become a real student of our craft. Um, and I think knowledge and understanding is everything to give uh, an accurate insight as to the why we're doing what we do on a daily basis and on the ground and in the field of play. Um, so first and foremost, I see myself very much as as the whole piece, not not one particular skill set. But as you say, I have had to um, and I've embarked on journeys where I've, I've held a different role. And I guess it really depends on the environment and the leadership that you work under in some of those spaces. Um, I think most probably one of the more interesting journeys was maybe co-coaching um, that England under 21 side. And, and I'm not sure whether or not that's just because they couldn't make their mind up, which maybe isn't the right reason um, for co-coaching. Um, but actually what it what it really proved is that it can work with the right people. Um, myself and Anna Stembridge at the time um, were both kind of tasked with co-coaching that England under 21s. And I, I'm not sure if it would work with everybody, but. Um, we had a real kind of mutual respect for each other's journeys, both as players and as coaches and had worked together prior to that. So I guess we weren't really starting from scratch. So understanding the strengths and weaknesses in, within your coaching team and celebrating that and working to those strengths is really, really critical. So being open and honest and transparent about that is key. Um, where I've been asked to kind of provide a more kind of technical slash skills input, it, that was definitely interesting for me because... I guess I have kind of led or assisted more in kind of a bigger team space. Um, but in my role at Team Bath running a, a full time programme, you know, I'm I'm very comfortable coaching a player one on one, working with a small group of, you know, four to one ratio with me, working with a positional group where they've they've got some clear skills and I'd say more kind of closed skills that they need to improve as well as then thinking tactically about how do we beat New Zealand um, and I'm okay with moving up and down that um, I think that's the absolute um, essence of coaching really and uh, and having been exposed to all of those I think is what makes me a better coach um, I can kind of drill right down into something that's a very technical specific work on with an individual but I see where that place is in the wider tactical implementation with the team um, and think that I get that message across well with a player and get good engagement. Uh, for me, um, I guess where I've most probably been least comfortable is when I've maybe been asked to take on roles that feel more sessional. Um, so understanding the challenge there is understanding what's the impact I can have in a short space of time, limited resource, limited contact time. How can I impact in this area and in this way? Um, and that's it's only been uncomfortable, I guess, because my outlook on what coaching really is. One of my mentors asked me a long time ago, you know, what is coaching and are you doing it? And when are you going to do it properly? And I never forget that kind of text message just to ponder on um, and thought, yeah, you know, he's right. At, at that time, I was really just sessional coaching, which anyone can do. Um, but it's always knowing what that destination is and, and hang your hat on that as you work back. So I worked as a as a shooting specialist coach um, with the England group. And I guess what I've learned to do is is make sure what's the one thing that's going to have the biggest impact in the time that I've got with these players. Um, and I think really drilling down into that and getting to know the individual is first and foremost, you know, always top of the agenda um, and relationships are everything. So 
yeah, I, I think just working through how to get the best out of somebody and not get too sidetracked with just putting on what looks like a great, neat, you know, session. That's that's often not where the 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 real benefit comes from that. It's normally in the relationship and getting really drilling down. Oh, you know, I've had the luxury of working with elite performers who are already very, very good. Um, so what's that kind of extra one percent that's going to make a big difference to their long term performance um, in that international arena? So. Yeah, I've enjoyed all of it. It's all played a part in my role, but um, I absolutely thrive in in a leadership role, heading a whole programme. Um, and I guess then around me, bringing in people that I feel will really complement that and also challenge that too. I guess with that in mind, 2019 was the right time for you to take the reins from Tracy Neville. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if there's ever a right time, but obviously a lot of things collided, of, um, you know, huge kind of personal success for Tracy with her pregnancy and and most recently the arrival of uh, baby Nev which is fantastic news um, and you know I'd made my decision back in November 2018 that I would call time on on what had been kind of 20 years in that team bath space um, so that was long long before um, Tracy's announcement that she would be stepping down from the role so despite all the rumours of some type of conspiracy theory, which have come out since then, you know, they were two very independent decisions. But as you say, um, sometimes I guess these things happen for a reason. And um, it, it, yeah, it was an interesting space. You know, I found out the same day that um, it all went out on social media that Tracy would be stepping down from that role. And it, it definitely took me a while to even kind of associate myself with potentially going for the, the role. I wasn't, I had very much made a decision about leaving Team Bath without actually seeking out the next job. It wasn't about leaving for the next role. It was about deliberately giving myself some space. Um, and I think when you've been in a, in a role like I had for that amount of time, um, I think that's important. You know, ultimately I had to arrive comfortable with that first and then kind of look forward and see what was on the horizon. So yeah, it was it was definitely an interesting time. Um, and, you know, I very quickly arrived in conversation with my husband and my family. Um, I've massively tried to contribute to the England netball environment over a number of years. Um, and I'm hugely passionate about it and have have worked with a lot of the athletes over the last kind of 15 years. So um, I think my husband said, why wouldn't you go for it? Um, and yeah, he kept it simple where I sometimes overcomplicate it. So I was like, no, you're right. I'm I'm as as in true Jess style, I put my name in the hat and let others decide um if I was the right person. But yeah, I mean, in the end, like you say, retrospectively perfect timing, but it certainly wasn't the plan. Uh, and definitely didn't know that that was um on the horizon. Jess, when you first sat down with Sarah Symington, the performance director at England Netball and a former leader speaker, by the way. How did you set out your hopes and expectations for the programme and did they match the wider teams? Yeah, I think um, I obviously went through quite a, a rigorous interview process and, and I'd kind of had touch points with Sarah in her role over a number of years um, because I led the intensive netball training centre in Bath. So it wasn't a complete alien space for me um, or kind of talking to, to the likes of Sarah. And I think through the interview process, I, I would like to think that you know, the questions that were asked hopefully shed a real light on where I saw the England Netball Roses and the programme overall and the sport was able to go. Um, I, I really enjoyed the conversations. I, as you most probably know, I hit the ground running um, in August, September and 
I think for the first 60 days of our programme, I think 54 of them were spent in contact with the player group. So we were we were pretty busy and pretty full on. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the critical decisions around selection, the player group, the competitions that we've just gone through over the last six months were all inherited. Um, so I, I, there was most probably a lot for me to do with kind of listening, observing, uh, really understanding what had worked well, um, speaking to different people within the organisation and getting a real um, grasp as to, you know, that there was clearly an excitement and energy and buzz around the organisation because of what the last two years has looked like in terms of success on the court. And it seemed like a really great space to be, but I've come in really kind of passionate about what's next um, and I'm not so much looking back but I'm very much looking forward so it was I guess a really important time for me over the last six months to get a feel for what are people thinking about that space you know it's as with any success comes greater expectation that it will just happen again and we know that winning after winning is a huge challenge in any sporting arena so um, it's it's not going to be easy so for me I, I had to kind of I guess journey through the the doing piece for the first couple of months. You know, I owed it to that player group that was very changed since the end of um, the World Cup in Liverpool, with a number taking quite rightly a uh, almost a bit of a sabbatical and break away from the Roses program. And we almost had a new, fresh faced player group that were pretty keen. So that was a great collision for me coming into the post and sensing the energy from that group, thinking there's a moment here and I really want to take it. Um, so yeah, I think I think now, really, six months into the into the role, this is where we're kind of sat in the room, really kind of challenging ourselves as to this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard, this is where I think we can go, and here's some of the kind of things that I believe we need to implement if we're going to get there. Um, and I'm I'm getting a real kind of um, people are joining on that journey already, um, but I think it's only really now that the dust is settled a little bit that I can really start to influence some of that positive change and hopefully just complement the work that's gone before I'm I'm not a big believer in making change for change's sake when you come in in a role like this but I absolutely know that the the sport has got great momentum we want our super league and domestic competition to to head towards semi-professionalism we know we've got a, a big piece of work to do commercially and to, to get greater investment into the sport and I'm very conscious of the role that we play um, as a roses group in that so you know we have to we have to keep being successful out on court and we're the shop window um for the sport so the the conversations are really positive and and i sense that everybody's kind of um on board so you know so to speak moving forward um so yeah just watch this space for what will hopefully be a, a program that evolves you know it became a centralized program four years ago so a lot of the things i guess i'm wanting to explore with people is what's fit for purpose now or not compared to what was four years ago and how do we keep moving ahead um, despite the success? Let's not make sure we get too distracted by, by living in the past and make sure that we know how to recreate that moving forward. A number of your playing group ply their trade down under in Australia's prestigious Suncorp Super Netball League. It's arguably the place to be at the moment. And so I wanted to ask, what is the impact of your players lining up in the world's strongest domestic competition? Does it raise overall standards? Do those players bring better performance habits to the national team camps and competitions when you call them up? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's most probably from and this is just my opinion. I think there are three critical factors that have led to greater success over the last couple of years. Um, one, I think um, 
the the literally the journey and time spent together the the core of that group as i said have been exposed and have got shared experiences across a multitude um, of major competitions over what has been almost three cycles so i think that's that's critical um b i absolutely believe um that some of our best players playing overseas you know for the likes of Jeeva, you're talking almost a decade um that certainly has played a huge part, not only for their own development in terms of being exposed week on week in what is a, an intense competition, but also just to kind of demystify um, psychologically a lot of the baggage that I think um, England teams historically, you know, being in that third, fourth, that bronze playoff, sometimes getting over the line, sometimes not, never really, you know, the gap between getting into a final in terms of goals was was always big. Um, so I think it just helped to demystify, you know, that actually they're not untouchable. It can be done. And I think for some of the younger players over here, being able to observe that and it be much more visible, um, watching some of our players and going, oh, OK, I play with that player. Maybe I can do that. Um, and then bringing that collective back in the room from an England point of view is is has made a huge difference. And then I think finally the amount of competition across our international calendar has in, increased significantly with again some planning that was most probably in place six seven years ago um even before the the last kind of four-year cycle so seeing the introduction of things like the quad series um in our international calendar where we're playing the best in the world far more frequently and i think what that's led to is you've seen an england side now that are certainly beating be the best teams in the world more frequently um, and I, I guess what my mantra is around at the minute is we now need to move on to maintaining that is is one challenge, but then also winning when it matters the most. Um, and I'm not just talking about the World Cup and Commonwealth Games, but how that, I guess, um, transcends into every competition throughout every year of our programme. So really understanding what it takes to win on the biggest stage in the biggest moment, as opposed to just getting these wins in spaces between those moments, which is in itself is important. But I think the next step for for our Roses team is to win when it matters the most. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Those guys playing overseas has certainly given us a lot of um, knowledge and um, intelligence. And it's definitely broken down some of the barriers um, and played a significant part. And it doesn't seem as if there's a schism, a sort of us and them dynamic at play. Uh, it's an interesting space to kind of be working in it it doesn't come without its challenges with obviously um a, a percentage of the playing group being based overseas um for a large part of the year uh, and then another kind of playing group back here in camp based uh, roses program mode so it, it certainly uh, throws up some challenges and i think it's definitely a space we can maybe look to continue to to tweak and improve um but i think as a player group they're absolutely fantastic in terms of um whether they're home or away they're connection is everything um, and I think they've done a really good job as to how to manage that area and that space um, I also think you know Sarah Symington and, and England Netball in terms of introducing this Roses program you know it had to be done with that in mind and I don't think that's necessarily going to change in the short term you know some of our best players are most probably going to continue to be based overseas um, and applying their trade over there because there's no escape in the fact that, you know, it's something they can do as their job. And I would never want to deny an athlete that opportunity. So our energies back here are around um, improving our own domestic setup, but we appreciate that we can't most probably yet compete um, in that space right now. 
Um, so, yeah, I think um, it's a testament to the culture of this Roses programme and uh, I guess the the values that the players and I um, place most importance on. Uh, connection is, is really important and, it, you know, it's a tough place to continue to invest your time and energy into playing for your country if we don't optimise what we get out of that in terms of output and performance on court. So if that's at the heart of everything, then I, I, norm, I feel like you really get good engagement from the player group. So I think we just need to keep kind of um, checking and challenging ourselves as to is there anything else that we can do to maximise that um, and are we getting the most out of it? But, you, you know, I think in terms of engagement, there's a real appetite Um I know the fan base are really keen to see some of those players back. And as of yet, we've had no retirements. Um, we've got no players saying anything other than than the fact they want to be continue to be in that Roses um, environment, which is fantastic news for me and for, for us. Um, and other than Ebony, obviously, who has um, announced her pregnancy recently, which we're, you know, super happy for her. Um, so it's an exciting time. And um, I think there's lots that can be done. I think... I think in this day and age, you know, with the amount of technology that we've got, I think we can get quite creative in that space as to how we um, keep engagement, um, but also very mindful and respectful that they they have their contracts with their clubs overseas. And we've got some really good relationships with the, the Suncorp squads and um, the staff and the player groups. We are in regular contact, not just with the players, but the whole infrastructure around them. So head coaches, CEOs, SNCs, physios. Um, and I'm really proud to kind of walk into a program where some of that is already established. And I will also go over to Australia um, and spend some time in that in that area as well and, and just make sure that where face to face can happen, that that we invest in that. Um, because, as I say, I don't think it's something that's going to change in the short term. So relationships is everything. You say you've not suffered any retirements. And of course, you are a centralised programme. So in that landscape. What does your onboarding process look like when it comes to bringing new players into the Roses squad? Yeah, I mean, in terms of formally how players can, um, I guess, at least put their hand up and want to be considered for our Roses programme, there's a formal process. Uh, we actually go through that um, quite imminently. So uh, the, the players themselves out in our Super League and or those that are playing overseas um, submit an expression of interest to want to be considered for our Roses camp-based programme and or the Futures programme. Um, so it starts with that expression of interest that, you know, there's most probably a collection of criteria that we then consider as to whether or not they're, it's the right fit for them right now um, and whether or not they're going to be able to, I guess, cope with the demands of those programmes. And also if we feel strongly that they're showing capacity and growth to either be that Roses athlete right now or show potential to grow into that that team in the future so it starts with an expression of interest um, we then sit as a selection panel we meet with those players they come into um, a day whereby there's a lot of information gathering but also sharing um, as to what the intent of the program is um, and, and I guess just real transparency as to, to the type of program they're wanting to be a part of in the demands of that um, and and then, you know, there will be a, a period whereby agreements are offered to a number of players. Um, and that, again, <clears throat> there are three different routes by which a player can be considered in our programme currently. Uh, the P1 route is the camp-based programme for those players that are based already in England playing in our Super League competition. Um, the P2 route are for those players that play overseas. 
uh, and then the P3 route up until now um, and will continue to evolve is basically the route by which anyone who's kind of very much embedded in a full time profession and career and or full time study, um, which I guess denies them currently to, to really commit to the full time roses programme. Um, can still be considered at certain fixed points leading into competition um, for selection. Um, obviously, it most probably makes it tougher for them if they're not fully in the programme, but it's something that we've always felt quite passionately about, that we don't want the door to be completely closed purely based on circumstance, as the sport, I guess, is um, trying to get towards at least semi-professional. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an open process, uh, some criteria um, and then agreements are offered and then obviously the athlete either accepts accepts that agreement and contract um, or they don't. And then the programme will kickstart in earnest um, from uh, from a practical point of view, most probably from the end of July. Um, and our kind of international space and window then goes through until kind of the end of January before both the Suncorp and Super League um, enter their kind of pre-season or competition space. So that's kind of how it looks like. I think, um, yeah, I mean, like the onboarding process for me is, is it has to be open. People need to be made very aware as to the demands of this programme. We need to be really clear as to how ready, um, the readiness of players and athletes stepping into this space, because at the moment our our domestic competition is in a really good place. And as I say, there's a real appetite from those Super League clubs to want to improve their offer and their environment um, and their infrastructure. But ultimately, it's it's a big step up into the Roses camp-based programme and playing, you know, two or three big international competitions in a short space of time between <clears throat> September and January. So we need, we, you know, it's very much our responsibility to to make sure players are ready for that transition and um and and therein lies the challenge around making sure that where programs need to be they're individualized and ready but um yeah i mean that's that's the formal process as it's currently been um and i guess we're just kind of again another area that i've definitely been reviewing to make sure that we've got the best available players within our roses program at all times and that i can select from the best available teams and players for each competition point you know we've got six competitions before we front up and arrive in Birmingham um with a target on our back to defend that gold medal so you know when you talk about it like that six competitions isn't very many so I'm also looking at ways in which we can maximize time spent together which isn't just in competition but also in our training environment and and how some of that can be done remotely into really good effect um and looking I guess elsewhere as to where that's been done really well in terms of maximising that time, I wanted to ask you about processes of debriefing and learning. If we take January's Nations Cup as an example, you finished third behind Jamaica and the World Champions New Zealand. Maybe it was a time to try new players, perhaps some new ideas. How did you approach debriefing that tournament, Jess? How do you ensure that you're learning and improving ahead of the 2022 Commonwealth Games in Birmingham? Who's involved in those conversations? Is it the players, the coaching staff, Sarah? Absolutely. Um, there's there's quite a robust process in place going in and out of any competition, but also at the end of any camp based block where we've been in camp for six or seven weeks. Um, there, there's always a review process. We, we always make time and space immediately after the competition for both a player and staff review. Sarah is very much part of that process. 
Um, we collate that information, we respond to it. Um, but there's also like we, we go through our culture health check. So throughout, not just linked then to competition, but also in terms of the programme, how are we journeying through that? Um, and again, the athletes will will um, input into that, as will the staff and the organisation. Um, and out of that, I guess it really highlights any themes that, A, we should celebrate as being really successful and how do we continue to embrace those but also where are the areas you know that we need to anticipate we might need to change or need to improve upon so there's some really robust processes in place which I think is great and is absolutely what um, England netball should be doing and we should be held accountable to that um, for me you know I've come into post and try to identify um, uh, there was a risk, I think, when I walked into this space with this particular player group in the absence of some of those more well-known and senior figures in the team, that there would be a bit of dependency uh, maybe upon one or two athletes for whom people just assume you've been in the programme longer. So you must be a leader in this space. And and I'm a big believer that everyone should and can lead. Um, so creating kind of I've, I have gone down the structure initially of a senior leadership player group. Um, which has kind of up to seven players in it. And that's representative of the whole player group. So you have to appreciate that we're not just talking about seven out of a squad of 12. We're talking about seven that represent most probably up to 24, 25 athletes, including our futures athletes. And, and actually they all enter that arena and that senior co um, leadership team um, in a, from very different places. Um, some have been in the programme, some haven't, some are much younger, some aren't, some sit in our futures programme, some sit very much in, in the team that have fronted up more recently in our competitions. And I think that's been a really interesting journey. I'm really pleased to see how they're starting to really take some autonomy and, and drive in that player space, but absolutely kind of connect the two in terms of us as coaches um, and as the staff and there's a real voice for them and I think that's working really well I've seen real progress um, in how they're going about their work and I guess being much more autonomous around things that they want to try as a group recognizing where we need to uphold um, the integrity of the program and how we're going about our daily workings um, and how we want to be seen by each other by externally um, and ultimately how we want to be perform on court um, Coaching wise, absolutely. I mean, I've walked into here and have been fully supported by Sarah to to use that that time to explore not only the playing um, the player group, but also the coaching group. Um, I'm a big believer that I, I feel like having gone around the world, um, either observing other coaches or, um, you know, been fortunate enough to have other coaches from countries work and mentor alongside me. I actually think we need to be pretty proud of the coaching ability that we've got in our own country um, and, you know, making sure that I ask the question around, first and foremost, which coaches do I feel are going to add the most value to these players? And secondly, who are going to add the value to me and, and check and challenge me and be that critical friend? Um, so, yeah, I've been afforded that time and space with Sarah's support to just make sure that I'm exploring that and not kind of jumping in and making commitments really early in the job um, in a space, like I say, where most things I was inheriting um, and the one space I felt I could most probably have an influence in in the shorter term was most probably the coaching. So it's been great to obviously um, to engage the likes of Sonia McClomer, who was a world class defender for us um, and has captained England before, but has also just been working over in Suncorp for the last four or five years, um, understands the structures over there 
is seeing that style of play week on week um, and has worked with, you know, the, the Swifts that have won the Suncorp last year. Um, great to have her involved. Um, the likes of Kat Ratnapala, somebody for whom I've worked with before, who who is leading in that Saracens Mavericks environment with a number of the Roses players. Um, Olivia Murphy, again, a former and long-standing England captain who has, I think, most probably one of the, um, I guess, what's the word? Re- like really subtly has most probably played a far more significant part in both Loughborough's and England's coaching space than people maybe understand because she's just such an understated character who who is not driven by ego, but very much enjoys kind of helping get players ready for, for England. So it's been, and, and alongside that, you know, the likes of Norma Plummer, who there is just no way you can argue with that lady's CV in terms of both her Australian diamonds journey and the repeated success that she got on the world stage, but more recently taking South Africa from most probably, you know, this team that everyone always thought had potential, but had never really realised it. And it has, has broken the glass ceiling for them, um, you know, getting into the top four in world netball. So I, I think to have those voices around me, that they're not people that are the same as me. They don't coach in the same way. We don't, it's not about agreeing all the time, but I think it's just a consensus that we're all in it. And we, you know, we're desperate to help this player group achieve above and beyond what's been done before. So yeah, it's been, it's yeah, it's been a real kind of privilege to to have support to do that. Yeah. What are the components that go into creating an optimal learning environment? Whether your players play at home or in Australia, you want them, of course, to be able to come in and take something away. Yeah, I, th- I guess where I tend to focus most of my attention is most probably like for me when we arrive in Birmingham and when we arrive in the World Cup in Cape Town in 2023 out on court. I hope I can sit on the sidelines and watch um, performers in the biggest arenas acting in a way where they can make autonomous, independent decisions, which have the the biggest and best impact on how we perform and connect as a team. And I guess at the minute, I'm really passionate around checking and challenging what are we doing in our environment? What what culture is it that we're trying to either maintain or develop that is enabling those behaviours all the time? And you know, that that is um, as wide and far as how our team manager interacts with the players, how we schedule our training programme within our camp based um, environment. Structures, processes, communications all have to align with what I believe is the the rose in the future that's going to as a as a whole unit is going to achieve more. And so I think. um Checking and challenging some of that, first and foremost, in terms of our practices and processes is really important and, and making sure we're all on board with that. Is that do the players and the staff get that? Do they understand that's what we need to be in order to achieve? Um, and then I would just kind of I always encourage in particular players, be curious, be disruptive, be a student of the game. Don't wait for things to be done unto you, like seek them out. Um and and I guess really enjoy that process of knowing your opposition inside out, knowing yourself and what our strengths are, being really clear with the branding style of netball that we want to play. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's those are kind of the key themes that I would always kind of expect and be trying to uh, implement and foster in the environments that I'm working in in order to optimise learning. I think. It, it, it isn't about hierarchy. I'm not the only person in the space that should and can know something about this sport. Like everybody should be contributing. And I think that therein lies the richness, really. So collaborating all the time, 
with that destination in mind is absolutely a critical space and I think it gets the best out of me and it certainly gets the best out of those that I'm working with if they feel engaged and that they have a voice in that process and I love it if a player, you know, a team meeting, I think when we were in South Africa between our test matches over there. So our first major test um, really, you know, we talked tactically about things that we'd already worked on in training, arriving at maybe, you know, test two and team meeting, you know, put back up tactically what we we felt was the game plan. And, you know, a player kind of just says, what if we did the complete opposite to that? Now, in, in some spaces, that would most probably completely paralyse the coach and you would completely, like, you know, get defensive about it. I, I loved that moment. You know, I, I pulled a chair up. I was like, talk to us, talk to the group. What do you mean? What, what do you see as the strength in that? Now, that wasn't a player disagreeing with anything. That was a player that was just curious about, is there any merit at all in actually trying something that's not that? And I, and, and I loved that. And I think it's moments like that where I think, you know, we're in, a, we're in a really good place where if we've created an environment where people feel they can and they can be brave enough to speak up um, and check and challenge, but by doing it collaboratively with people, not creating attention, then I, I think we're moving in a really good direction. So I guess that would just be a tangible example where I think for some coaches that might be a scary moment. But for me, I, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and my final question, finally, how do you think the skill sets of a head coach are evolving in netball? And where are things going to go over the next few years? Yeah, really good question. Um, future proofing the coach in netball. Um, I think skill set wise, and to be honest, I'm, I'm I would be um, surprised if this is just in netball, but I think in terms of kind of coaching style, delivery, philosophy, um, I think engagement of the player group and giving some autonomy to them, but within a a structured environment, uh, I think it's really important as coaches that you can demonstrate knowledge and understanding in in multiple ways. And I mean, it's not my style anyway, in terms of, I'm not very I'm not a dictator so I'm not out there telling um, players what to do like I say I very much try to start with a destination a rationale get engagement bring them on that journey explore it Um, and yeah so I think it's really important that I guess coaches first and foremost invest in themselves to have the knowledge and experience and understanding that I think translates into that particular coaching style. And I think my observations are that there is a shift, I think, in netball, that that coaches are doing that um, more so. But I still think it's most probably quite varied and particularly maybe kind of working with our younger athletes. And often when I've um, worked with other coaches, it tends to come from a place where they actually lack understanding and knowledge and so it becomes their kind of fallback to do the kind of the tell, tell, tell approach. Um, and then they question what we all question then as coaches on match day, why we didn't see athletes leading change out on court. You know, all that common language around. You've got to be able to change it when you see it. Well, if we haven't created an environment like that, then why should we ever expect them to be able to do it in those moments? So I think just being, yeah, being knowledgeable, um, and comfortable enough and be okay in that space where it is quite um it, it can be quite uncomfortable disruptive um but know that out of that you're most probably better preparing the athletes for the inevitable um and in particular the transition of our young athletes throughout our pathway to get them ready for the 
the, the you know the international game so i'm definitely seeing more of that um but i would say that there's uh, this is very bigger picture i think we've got a lot to do in our area around coach development um and i think as an organization there's there's a big i think a bigger responsibility for us to make sure that we're having an impact in that area i think we've got a fantastic community of coaches working up and down the country on behalf of our sport um but i think they need to be better supported so i think looking at our coach development structures and how we can help expose coaches um to ultimately see more of that behavior in their coaching style and delivery is absolutely critical um so this isn't a, a criticism of them but more of what does that look like you know like if i'm a coach where do i get my support where do i get exposed where do i get challenged or am i just very much caught in the doing of my job and losing sight of the bigger picture and in the meantime we're not necessarily creating a a really wide and broad base of athletes that are kind of needing to lead more on their own development um but yeah i, I think we're in i think we're definitely seeing more athletes that are open to that style um <clears throat> And, and and hopefully more coaches that understand the value in it um, and that, you know, telling and instructing is most probably not going to help them in the longer term. And certainly on the international stage where it's it's so dynamic, you know, in moments they've got to be able to recognise it um, and then be able to make change themselves long before, you know, they can come off court and get any information from us. And let's be honest, when we walk into the onto the battlefield, most of the work should have been done. Um, so let's not, as coaches, put so much um credit on ourselves that in that space you know we're going to make the biggest difference yes of course there are decisions that can be made but i think you know the training ground is where most of that should have been done that seems like a great place to wrap things up jess thank you very much for coming on today thank you john it was a pleasure to be involved thank you 